Welcome to Great Ideas. We're broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, unions. The share of workers covered by a collective bargaining agreement, part of a union, is down to one in eight, less than half of where it was 40 years ago. Recently, Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama decided not to form a union in what many analysts described as a historic vote and a blow to the labor movement, especially after President Biden voiced support for the union drive. The episode points to a bigger question in the American economy and society. Where is the union movement? And after years of decline, does it have a future? Our guest today says that we should all pay close attention to these questions because labor unions are still relevant, even essential to American workers. But he also says that unions are badly flawed and in need of major and rapid reforms. David Madland is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's been called one of the nation's wisest young scholars by one of my favorite authors, Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion. And he's written a book called Reunion, just an awesome title, by the way, how bold labor reforms can repair, revitalize, and reunite the United States. David, welcome to Great Ideas. Matt, thanks very much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. And off the top, I want to ask you a tough question. If only about one in eight Americans is in a union these days, why should the other seven of eight care? I mean, after all, labor unions are sort of stereotyped as dull. There was even a Simpsons episode where the best example of a boring issue that they could come up with was Krusty the Clown interviewing the head of the AFL-CIO. But you argue in your book that unions are actually a public good. So what do you mean by that? And why does this topic matter to all of us? Well, if you look at some of the biggest problems facing our country's economy and our democracy, you know, you'll see problems like stagnant wages. Wages for most workers have not risen over many, many decades. And for some, like men without a college degree, they've even perhaps declined a little bit. You also know that uh, economic inequality in our country is near record highs. We also have huge pay gaps between men and women, between whites and blacks and whites and Hispanics. And we also have a political system that is very much more responsive to the wealthy and corporations than it is to ordinary citizens and regular people. And I think unions can help address all of those issues. And that's for people, whether they're a union member or not, they can raise wages for not only union members, but also broadly all of society. They reduce inequality across the country. They help bring up the bottom and the middle, and they help sort of keep the top in check. Similarly, they help compress, they they make sure that workers are treated equally and fairly. So there's less pay discrimination. So pay gaps decrease. And in the political system, they help energize workers to participate more. They're much more likely to vote when they're members of unions. And that's especially true for people with less education and lower incomes. And then they kind of behind are behind the scenes advocates for policies that the public supports. Whereas the wealthy and corporations have lobbyists, the, the rest of us, we're just hopeful that we have unions and that they're strong enough to advocate for the kinds of policies we support. So that's why I think all of us really should care that unions benefit the broad public and they're in trouble now, but I also think they're re strengthening them could help address some core problems that our country faces. Can you sketch out just a little bit 
of the history here. Where did the labor movement come from and when did it hit its high point? Sure, the origins of the labor movement are kind of are with the origin of industrialization. As the US and really the world was industrializing, workers who were formerly farmers or they had a little a specialty and they were, you know, able to do, you know, shot horses or the like. They, as sort of they faced growing competition from large industrial scale companies and workers were pulled into them, they sought a way to ensure they could still have some decent standards that weren't getting undercut by this sort of growing, you know, mechanization that was devaluing work. And that, you know, for that's sort of the 1850s and, and kind of on. And as the country industrialized more and more, work for many people wasn't very good until workers were able to join together and unionize. And what you saw is sort of kind of up until about the 19, late 20s, uh, like early 30s, unionization was really low in the United States, kind of about at the same levels it is now. Then we, under Franklin Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, passed the National Labor Relations Act, which gave workers the right to join a union. Before that, they were often seen as illegal restraints on trade and with whether corporations and their hired police, private police, or the government police sort of would crack down on them. And so it was a really ugly time and hard to join a union. And then the government said, you know what, we actually want to encourage unionization. We think this is a good thing. And it's going to be help us get out of the Great Depression because workers are going to have more purchasing power and help us prevent sort of fascism that we see rising in the rest of the world. And that, that law, plus World War II, because during World War II, the government did several things that helped strengthen labor because they really didn't want to have strikes or any sort of workplace stoppages. So the National Labor Relations Act plus World War II led to this map and a huge surge of worker organizing. All of those, the policy plus worker organizing led to this huge surge in union growth so that about a third of all workers were part of unions kind of going into the late 40s. There was a and then we had kind of 20, 30 year period where union density remained about the same level. And then since the 1970s, it's been in pretty significant decline, so much so that today the private sector union density is just 6%. And that is lower than before the law gave workers the legal right to join a union. So we're kind of back to this early industrial age where corporations have tremendous power and workers have far less and have are not sort of organized and able to sort of negotiate on a relatively equal footing. So putting the first point and the second point together, you make the case that we've seen this middle class squeeze for people who are working, who are in the middle class or aspiring to middle class. And so these issues of union participation collective bargaining really affect all of us because there's been massive increases in the costs that middle-class people face. There has been flat or declining income that all of these families face. And union participation can increase pay levels and other benefits for everybody, not just the folks in unions. And so putting that together with this decline that you've sketched out over the last 40 years, it seems like this presents a real challenge for most working people in America that one of the forces that would otherwise 
increase, their, their level of pay and their level of benefits has been diminishing, has been declining, and we're sort of seeing the results all around us in the effects in the American economy. Yes, I think that's you know a pretty clear statement of some of the big problems we face. You can sort of see it on an individual level where just at your workplace, you might not have some basic rights. You think you know you could be fired, for example, most workers can be fired for almost any reason whatsoever. This the employer doesn't like the way you cut your hair or anything like that. Things that uh, you, if you had a union contract, they would protect you so that you could only be fired for actually not doing a good job or that the company is going under those kind of kind of things. So we have, you know, at an individual level, you feel this great vulnerability. Same time, your you know, wages are not really increasing much and your cost, especially of these really core important things that are signifiers of especially middle class lifestyle, housing, healthcare, higher education have really spiraled and families face this great squeeze. And then also at the same time, we have a societal level problem when you have near record levels of economic inequality that so that wages are really and incomes are going up for the very, very top and not for much for everyone else. This leads to these great divides in society, not only political polarization, where we just don't seem to sit, live the same kind of lives anymore, and we just, we just are much more likely to fight and disagree. We also, so we have less levels of trust in society, the ability to sort of think people are share things in common with you. And, you know, we're, we're really at this, you know, I think a lot of people fear for the future of our democracy right now, where we have these great large fights. And our many of our institutions aren't working, and so the, we have this sort of the needs of the individual and the society that all stream out to me for stronger unions. Why have we seen this kind of decline over the last 40, 50 years? According to Gallup polling, perceptions of labor unions have, by and large, been positive by around a two-to-one margin. Americans say that they have positive views of labor unions with a slight dip around the time of the Great Recession. And so generally positive PR, generally positive benefits from a level of as many as a third of American workers down to this nadir today, why, why are we here? Yeah, that's the crux of the matter is that the public, as you said, is about as supportive of unions as they've ever been, and they've always sort of been supportive of unions. In fact, the sort of additional polling that sort of highlights that is more than half of all workers say they would like to join a union if they could. So it's not only they like them, they even want to join. And then at the same time, you know, density, the share of worker, share of workers in the country that are part of unions is about as low as it's, you know, ever been or been in 100 years. And the main factor that has contributed to that, certainly the economy has changed. We have you know, shifted from a less, from more of a manufacturing to greater services. We have greater globalization. And so there have been some economic shift and studies will say that those have some impact. But the biggest factor is that our policies have made it very, very hard for workers who want to join a union to be able to do so. So that so much so that the you know it was highlighted in, in the Amazon Bessemer uh, warehouse where uh, anyone who was sort of reading the paper could sort of see that the largest corporation in the world, richest 
man in the world, Bezos, and the kind of tactics that they would subject the workers to, some of the you know most exploitable, most vulnerable kind of workers who would very expensive anti-union consultants would force the workers to have one-on-one meetings with their boss to discuss the union and they, and they could go, you know, describe, well, we probably might have to close this facility and you're going to pay all these huge costs. And we don't think that'd be a good idea. Oh, by the way, would you like this anti-union button to wear? And so all these kind of tactics, and that's just within the legal boundaries. And then if perhaps the company crosses the line and fires a worker for trying to join a union, there are no financial penalties. The, the, you know, so much so that what the company would likely have to do is just post a notice that they broke the law, that those uh, you know, companies, executives who fight unions have tended to call those things their hunting license, that they just, they just mark that this is what I had to do to fire someone who was just post this little notice. So that workers feel intimidated and threatened and not able to exercise a fair in a fair way, their decision to want to join a union and bargain collectively. That's quite a legal sanction if the most you have to do is to advertise that you gleefully broke the law. So you referenced as part of that example of the unionization drive at the Amazon facility, some of the myths, some of the arguments that are made, and and maybe there are kernels of truth in some of them. Could you help us sort through, just in a nutshell, what union membership actually means and what it doesn't. The the biggest contention against unions is that workers pay a lot, they don't get a lot of benefits. So is that true? Or do unionized workers actually do better financially and in terms of benefits? What do the numbers say? Sure. Before I get into the specifics, I just, I think it's worth stepping back because there's plenty of grounds to criticize unions and some of the criticisms are true and, and deserved, but oftentimes it's my view is it's sort of missing the forest for the trees. It's kind of like there's plenty of things to criticize about corporations. You know, oh, sometimes they're greedy or break the law or violate work, people's rights or you know, destroy whole economies. But we generally think they're a benefit to society. We want to control them and check them, but it's a pretty efficient way to allocate capital. And I think the similar way of thinking about Unions. Unions are a very effective way of having a reasonable balance of power in the economy and in society between workers and the wealthy capitalists. And they're very successful at that. Not every union at every time and every moment is going to be perfect. So some of the criticisms, you know, okay, sometimes you, you have you'll pay union dues, or actually you don't ever really have to pay union dues. You certainly don't have to pay in a right to work state which supposedly right to work state, but you in states that uh, allow what are called fair share fees, you would pay the, sh- the cost of negotiating and bargaining for a collective bargaining agreement. You wouldn't pay the union dues. You wouldn't pay political activities or any of those kind of things. You would just pay the cost of this contract that generally raised your wages and benefits. Now, the research is unions in the, in the US members receive about 12 or 13% higher wages, they are much more likely, like uh, 30 to 50% more likely to receive benefits like health care and retirement. And those benefits are of higher quality. So they're going to get a pension, for example, rather than a skimpy 401k that enables you to retire. They're also more likely to have paid leave, sick leave, and, and the list goes on and on. And those are also more likely to be the, tra- the workforce training they get 
is going to be better. So they get much more benefits. Now, certainly you can find a case where as unions have weakened, they've been, they have less negotiating power and not every particular case have they always been able to get a pay raise. And that's as an econ, you know, as a, a company is losing market share, it has less ability, for example, to union has less power to negotiate because the company's struggling. So they might not, they have to even sometimes negotiate a lower wage than they used to get, but that's still most oftentimes far better than the workers would have done on their own. So I think the, the basic story is, you know, the, the workers who are members of the union tend to do financially significantly better in most cases, but you can always find a sort of a horror story if you want to try to point to one, but that's, uh, you know, generally missing the forest for the trees. So setting aside some of the, you know, the plural of anecdote is data, but setting aside some of the, some of the horror stories, you've alluded to the fact that there, there are some real challenges that the labor movement faces. There was a, a great political cartoon several years back that showed a bunch of dinosaurs linked arm in arm and singing the union anthem, Solidarity Forever. And it spoke to something that people inside the labor movement recognize, which is that labor unions are facing, you gave the numbers, they're facing this decline, this massive decline, and they may not be well-adjusted to the economy and the society of the 2020s. So what are labor's true greatest challenges? You know, labor, as you mentioned, faces a number of challenges. I think it's you know hard to say that there's just one thing that 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 is the the core problem. But the the sort of suite of issues I would say that labor needs to think through are one how you know the economy has changed in ways from the large manufacturing facilities that tended to be. Easy, not necessarily easy because the, the, you know, the stories are like these massive sit-down strikes. They weren't easy to organize, but once they were organized, they were relatively stable for, for decades. But unions have had a much harder time organizing sort of the newer industries, retail, Walmart, the Amazons of the world. And so the sort of changing nature of the economy is one of the structures. But the bigger one that I would point to is just the changing nature of politics and sort of sorting through that. Sadly, unions in recent years have become an incredibly partisan issue, you know, where Demo Democrats are much more likely to support unions, although I will fair to criticize Democrats for decades of not doing enough to support unions, and many of them actually seeking to weaken unions. But, and Republicans now have become the leadership, not the, not the member, not the sort of ordinary worker, people who are part of the Republican Party, but the leaders of the Republican Party has become exceedingly hostile to unions and seek to do most things in their power to weaken them because they see them as a political threat to their power. And that is a massive problem because you have things like the Supreme Court making all these rulings that make it very hard, even harder than what I've described for unions to operate. You have states, as soon as Republicans take power, Wisconsin, Scott Walker was sort of the case example, but that happens in a number of states. As soon as Republicans get sort of power, they will do everything they can to weaken unions and make it virtually impossible. So union density in Wisconsin in the public sector used to be around two thirds. It is like 10% now and, you know, like massive fall from 
policy. So this negotiating this sort of political situation and where this is, we're, we're in a hyper-partisan environment and they're in the crosshairs of, of the Republican party. There's some op potential optimism there that the, you know, the actual membership of the Republican party is pretty pro worker policy and is sort of, they're, they're, they're no longer the kind of trips, the standard trickle down policy is not what they want anymore. And so there is some potential there. And then I think the last thing I would sort of challenge is kind of a generational challenge. And this is a double-edged sword because in some ways it cuts very nicely, but most of today's young folks have very little direct experience with unions. And so they don't, you sort of, you have to have an, you're having an intellectual conversation with them. Whereas many people of an older generation were like, yeah, oh yeah, I was a member or my dad was or whatever it, it is. And so, you know, this generational challenge, you now while the flip side of this generation challenge is young people today are the most pro-union of just about any generation. I think that's largely because they've only seen an economy that doesn't work for them. They've seen the downsides of having, you know, significant power in corporations and very little for workers. So they're very open and receptive, but I think there's a need to connect to them as well. David, you were telling us that there's a connection here. We've seen a massive decline or stabilization in how much people who work in America are paid. At the same time, we've seen a massive increase in the costs that we all pay to live our lives. And there's an associated decline in how many Americans are part of labor unions. And so you connected these trends and laid out a case for a need to revitalize unions. If we can do that, we can start to put upward pressure for everybody on how much people are paid, how much participation we all get in the wealth and the welfare of the American economy. And you've also laid out, there are some real challenges that labor unions face. So David Madland, what is your great idea for labor reforms that can repair, revitalize, and reunite the United States? Yeah, I think there's two big ones that we need to do. The first is we need to have our policy actually encourage workers to join unions, not be hostile and not even just be neutral, but to actually encourage workers to join. And the second thing we need to do is encourage more bargaining at the sectoral or industry-wide level, not just the workplace by workplace level that we currently have. So it, most all workers in an industry or region will be covered by a similar contract so that we're we're getting beyond this just individual individual kind of bargaining. Now, let's focus on the second part first because the first part is you were addressing that a moment ago that it's almost a political question, but but the second one, this idea of organizing by sector rather than by company is sort of a whole different way that unions themselves can can think about what they do. So what is that? How would it work? And, and why is it better? Yeah. So the idea behind what many people call sectoral bargaining, or some people call industry-wide or multi-employer or even broad-based, is that you would have the representatives of workers, the unions, negotiate with a group of employers who, in a similar industry, a contract that would cover all the workers doing the work in that industry, not just the union members, so with all the workers at all the factories. 
and they would have the, the benefits of a union union contract. And what so you just think of take a take a supermarket for example. That's our the way our our law currently works is if say the butchers at the supermarket they aren't many butchers in the supermarkets anymore but like they wanted to unions just the, that group would would unionize and start to try to collectively bargain that wouldn't mean the the clerks the you know the people the back back of the shop wouldn't necessarily bargain and they would be bargaining just at that particular work site so as say walmart did in canada just wanted to well we're not going to have butchers anymore there goes your union now the other way of thinking about it is well actually all the supermarkets in a particular region could have a, a bargaining relationship and then everyone who works there would be covered by a contract so you're not going to you don't just change change the shape of the of the supermarket to avoid a union and so everyone gets covered so that is you know leads to a number of really good results the first is that many more workers get covered by a collective bargaining agreement so that means more workers have higher wages more workers get higher benefits. They have protections at, at work. They also we close close the pay gap between women and men and between blacks and whites. We have all of that. So lots more people benefit. But even more than that, it's also good for companies and for society. So for for companies, then you have you foster a competition based on higher productivity, not trying to cut wages. And that generally, you know, productivity gains are what leads to higher standards of living. So you sort of force the, this kind of fair competition on an even playing field that generally led, leads to benefits for the companies as well. And then as society, you have the overall economic inequality decreases even more than the traditional kinds of union bargaining. So I, I really, and the last thing that I think is key here is these are particularly well suited for the way the shape of the modern economy is that companies uh, shift in a lot of different ways or fissure as some academics like to call it. They'll have layers and layers of contracting, subcontracting or franchising and the likes so of the really lead brand employers claim no credit or try to avoid their responsibility for the actual workers, they pleaded an app and said, well, we're not their employers. Instead, you sort of have everyone covered, no matter how you're, you, the employers have tried to shape shift to that this industry is going to get covered by this set of agreements. And this is, there's no way out of it. I want to pick up on one aspect of what you mentioned there, because for everything you said earlier, I think it, it, it's clear to, to me and to listeners, okay, he, we know the benefits for workers of being in a union. We know the benefits to not being in a union, but having your work bargained by a union. So that side of it is clear. I'm interested in the benefits from the company side. You, you laid out something kind of interesting there, which is that, let's say to take your supermarket example, let's say I work at uh, Big Y, for example, which is a regional supermarket chain where I live. And my, my friend works at Market Basket another chain. So we would both be covered and there would be no competition between Market Basket and Big Y to see who could be more profitable by decreasing my pay. There's no, there's no longer a race to the bottom to say, look, 
we could we could really improve our margins here if we just pay Matt Robeson a little bit less. Instead, you would be incentivized as a company to say, look, we got to pay Robeson the same, whether he's working for us, whether he's working for our competitor. And there's a whole structure that goes with, he could be a butcher, he could be a clerk. And so now my job as an executive at Market Basket is, I need to get the most out of Robeson. I need to get the best work and we need our product to be the best. We need the most customers. That's the way to profitability. Is that is that essentially the argument? Did I did I catch that right? You did a really nice job. Yes. The there are studies that sort of back up that that countries that have done, moved more towards sectoral bargaining, you'll see this sort of that the the companies have to it's kind of, you know, they call it a productivity whip that they're well the wages are going to be this level. I gotta, I gotta get the productivity up to in order to have profits at that level of wages. The other element that goes on here that I think is an important way to understand what happens because it's not just about the more efficient use of capital and shifting it to that. It's also that okay, my workers are going to be paid this. I need to train them and invest more in them. And so you see a lot more workforce training and of much higher quality because it's broader based for sort of all of the sector that the employers come together and they tend to create good trainings as opposed to here's this sort of one-off thing for my particular need at this moment. And you also have the incentive structure for good training is correct because right now in our system, you if an employer trains a worker, they fear that another competitor will just hire them away at a slightly higher wage. And so they say, it's not worth it. We're not going to really train. And so the U.S. underinvests in training compared to most of the rest of the advanced world because we have this really very individualistic system. And so when you have the broader sectoral kinds of bargaining, you tend to have a lot more. The, the incentive structure is we need to do this. So we're going to we're going to find a way to create it. And it leads to higher quality, better, more and better training. So the workers really are earning those higher wages. What would it take to make your great idea around sectoral bargaining a reality? Is it something that unions can just do on their own? Does it take legal changes from people in government? Or do companies have to go along with it? All of the above, a little bit of each that you're you're talking about. So certainly there is ability for unions to do this on their own, even with our system. So our current law really, really makes sectoral bargaining very, very hard. It uh, prevents, for example, unions that want to combine their bargaining units. They have the butchers and the clerks at the same supermarket, even really hard to combine that just to have a broader level. But even within our current system, we have a long history of pretty close to sectoral bargaining when unions had really high density, or you think of the auto industry throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, when auto assembly was nearly 100% unionized. And they did what was called sort of pattern bargaining, where they would negotiate with big one of the big three, and that then they would have a similar contract with everyone else. And it was basically sectoral bargaining. And even today, we have something like that in a few different industries, maybe hotels in one particular city, or actually the writers, TV writers, all TV writers every, everywhere get a similar con base contract. And so we can we can build upon that history and, and seek to do that. But I think we need to do a lot more. And the, the biggest thing is to change policy. And the things we need to do there are, one, we need to make stronger unions so they can do more of this on their own. 
So we, policy has got to encourage unionization. And that's the, the starting point is that stronger, more, when unions have more power, they can do more of this. But usually you need to do, you need to also do more. And the second thing I, I, I like to point out is what I would call extension. So when union density is kind of at a certain level, those contracts in an industry would cover all the other workers. So that let's say unions represent 30% of the workforce in a particular sector, then everyone gets sort of the benefits of that. They sort of have a threshold trigger. And for the sort of model of this that we sort of have in the United States are our prevailing wage laws. These are what cover, you think of a government contract, like a construction contract for a highway. The wage and compensation package that we require on that is determined by what's, quote, prevailing in that market. And if union density is high enough, the prevailing package that government contractors have to pay is the union rate. And so I think we can build upon that model as sort of a trigger that kind of, okay, union density is a certain level. Let's make that, the, the, and that covers more workers and it encourages more employers to say, well, if that's going to cover me anyway, I want to be part of that bargain. And then the last thing I, I want to, I think we need to do is that in certain sectors where there's just about no union density and the industry is incredibly fissured, layers and layers of contracting, where sort of the traditional, you have to kind of bootstrap the bargaining. And those, I, I consider you create sort of what a workers board, it's a kind of a tripartite system where you have representatives of workers, representatives of employers, and representatives of the public all at the bargaining table. And it's close, it's somewhere between bargaining and policymaking, but it's uh, a discussion and it's a sort of a step towards true collective bargaining when you kind of need to bootstrap it. And then from the last thing you asked about employers from their perspective, you know what they can do? Well, they can recognize that the current system is not really working very well for anyone in the at the moment they have won the game they have all the power they have you know profits at near record highs but i think they also are recognizing this isn't necessarily good for our, our country we are you know in a crisis of stagnant wages collapsing democracy but even our our competitiveness around the world is not nearly as high as it could or should be and you know we have huge trade deficits for example that and the countries that are sort of very productive at the high edge tend to have these kind of sectoral systems because it fosters this high productivity economy and that they can see their long run interests here in really having a better, more equitable distribution of power and a structure that forces the highest wage kind of competition possible. And I think that's what they can see their long run interest in. One of the challenges that unions face in addition to some of the things we've mentioned, is a perception problem that perhaps drives some of the politics that have engulfed the labor movement, as you alluded to before. For example, while I mentioned that by about a two-to-one margin, consistently polling has found that Americans like labor unions, they support labor unions, that same polling has consistently found that Americans expect unions to become weaker over time by two to one. And we all know that expectations have a tendency to become reality. Similar margins, about two to one, think that unions hurt the workers who are not unionized. Now you've pointed out that that's not really true, but that's the perception. By a three to one margin, Americans say 
that they would probably support right to work laws. And by four to one, they say that no one should be forced to join a union. And of course, there are recent issues like in the reopening debate in schools, teachers unions have been caught up in that fight. And despite research showing that, you know, for instance, highly unionized school districts actually fire more underperforming teachers, there are perceptions out there that unions protect workers in all fields who really should be let go. So do unions, despite that top line perception and support from Americans, do unions have a much deeper perception problem here that's part and parcel of their decline? Is it deserved? And would your approach help to fix it? Yeah, so the perception problem that unions face, I think is, you know, it's multifaceted and that there's a lot of issues and unions can carry some blame. You didn't also met the other one is corruption that's thrown out against unions. And there are high profile cases of corruption. But again, just like there are high profile cases of corruption in corporations, we tend not to say, let's get rid of corporations because Enron happened or whatever it is. So the this is a I think unions certainly need to get their house in order. And the there are real problems that they are they are facing that they, you know, cases of protecting workers who didn't actually, or police unions protecting, you know, this is a who didn't necessarily deserve the kind of level of protections they're they're getting. Some of the 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 concerns are about that, well, they have these protections, but I don't, and therefore I don't like it, rather than actually, I really do want it. We all deserve this. But again, most, I I think a lot of these concerns are overblown because there's a vested interest that continues to circulate these stories. People that don't like unions, the powerful and the wealthy and the corporations want to make sure we all know these stories. And so they spend millions and millions of dollars and public relations to try to gin up this kind of concern. Because when the public actually gets a chance to talk or vote, the polls show it, but very few times the public actually gets to vote on unions, which is really rare. But think of the few times, like, so there was right to work, a right to work vote in Missouri. Public said, we don't like that. We don't want that. Not a particularly left-leaning state. Similarly, in Ohio a few years ago, to get rid of when the state of Ohio was trying to do sort of Scott Walker-like get rid of public sector union kind of policies, public referendum. We don't like that stuff and we don't want it. Now, they didn't recall Scott Walker when the public, but, but voting on Scott Walker is different than a direct vote on unions. And when unions are really there, the public is pretty support. Even there was even a vote a couple of years ago in Virginia on get right to work. It was a constitutional amendment, but didn't, you know, the public didn't, didn't want it. So I think most of the, the perception problem is really an elite political problem that the Republican leadership at this moment has decided they want to try to kill unions. And that is where they see their future is they don't want any threat to their power. And they see unions and sadly almost, you know, some basic function elements of democracy as a threat that we have this real political challenge that unions face to, and and to build a broader support within the Republican Party, and I think that's going to be a base building exercise, in addition to deepening 
the the support within the Democratic Party because there's always a tension between the power of donors and the power of what the public and workers want in any any party. So I think it's a, a high level political problem is the is the is the real perception problem that unions face. And by strengthening unions and perhaps broadening their base of political support, we might be able to address that. I want to in in the final segment of the show, I, I just wanted to ask one other aspect of this, hearkening back to the cartoon image of dinosaurs linked arms singing Solidarity Forever. There's a little bit of a sense when you talk to people kind of behind closed doors who are leaders in unions that maybe they need to get a little bit more creative, a little bit more innovative in what they do. Obviously, the, the main function is to bargain collectively to increase worker benefits and wages. Should unions be more innovative? Should they be rethinking what they offer and the role they play? Yes, absolutely. I think unions have always been a mix of a political and economic and cultural and social institution. And they always play some, sometimes it's a little more self-help. Sometimes it's a little bit more of a business kind of negotiation and sometimes it's you know more more of the political behind the scenes thing. They, and so going forward, they need to realize that that the that they can emphasize one or more of those facets depending on what's most advantageous. And that the world has shifted, the politics have shifted. And to me, the most interesting aspect of this shifting thinking about unions is that the countries most like us, Australia, Canada, and Britain. The unions in those countries and the leadership in those countries is very much moving towards the kinds of sectoral bargaining policies that I've talked about. They see that as the future. And I think there's a strong lesson there for the United States labor movement to think and say countries most similar that these have have the experience, similar experiences and they are moving in this direction. There's a strong reason we can and should too. David Madlin, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress and the author of Reunion, How Bold Labor Reforms Can Repair, Revitalize, and Reunite the United States. Thank you so much, David, for sharing your great ideas and giving us some insights into labor and unions. Matt, thank you very much. 